start off with this, this verse that really bridges Pastor Tom's sermon last week to today's. It really, it, it, he's speaking about what he's just said, right? Paul is encouraging believers. He's saying, be imitators of God, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. And what we see throughout this section of the letter where it could be hard to hear Paul telling us how the Christian life is supposed to look is that he begins and ends every command with a reminder of the gospel, a reminder of who you are. And so if you've heard anything in the last couple of weeks or next week as a command for behavior change, you're not hearing what Paul is trying to say. He's trying to say, you have a new heart. You've been made new. And so if you look at last week, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, put away bitterness and wrath and anger. He's saying because of what Christ has done for you, you are a new person. And so think about it. How does God speak to you now, right? Why do we lie, right? We lie to make ourselves look better, to to put down somebody else, to make sure our meaning and purpose is not taken away from us. And yet, God, because we are united to Christ, sings songs of praise over you. He rejoices over you. The God of the universe looks at us and rejoices and sings songs of praise over you. What lie or what words could possibly surpass the joy of knowing that God delights in you as much as he does? Right? Or if you think about what Paul's referring to in terms of anger, right? God God is angry at sin and yet he poured that anger onto his son. And now he welcomes you as his own child. Remember that. And then he's saying work, right? Like, Jesus left the comforts of heaven to enter into our broken world, right? And, and, and give it all up for us. Work is, is not supposed to define you. He's done all the work already. Now we have the opportunity to use our gifts to enjoy what he has done and to give to others. He's saying you're, we're free to follow the better way. We're no longer under the illusion that these other things can really make us happy, can really bring us joy. And he's just reminding the church of this. And so it's with that new identity that he transitions into the next set of exhortations, the next set of commands. And he says in verse, six, uh, in verse 2, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. When Adam and Eve rebelled and they believed the serpent, they believed that they could be happier apart from God, happier from being apart from following his commands. And they had a desire to control every part of their lives, knowing good and evil apart from God, no longer subject to his commands, making rules for themselves. And so one resulting belief of that is that our bodies belong to us. Our bodies are for us. They're for our pleasure. They're for whatever we want to do that's pleasing to us. And if the world is all there is, right, the body becomes another ultimate destination for meaning and for happiness. And we experience this in countless ways, right? We, we eat and drink, right? We call, we call pictures food porn for a reason, right? Because food becomes the source of escape and a source of solace, for our lives, right? Drink, we, can, we drink to the point of escape, right? And even when we know it's not good for us, we don't care, we like the way it makes us feel. Sometimes we're the opposite, we won't eat things because we wanna look a certain way. And all of our meaning and purpose in our body is tied up with beauty. The feminist writer Gia Tolentino writes this 
amazing quote in her book, Trick Mirror. She says, mainstream feminism has driven the movement toward what's called body acceptance, which is the practice of valuing women's beauty at every size and iteration to diversify the beauty ideal. I've appreciated it personally. And yet, it depends on the precept that beauty is still of paramount importance. We've hardly tried to imagine what it might look like if our culture could do the opposite, make beauty matter less. See what she's saying? She's saying that our bodies become a source of worth and our beauty. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not saying we shouldn't enjoy a good meal out. I'm not saying we shouldn't care about what we eat. But we have the, the inclination to make it ultimate, to find deep meaning and purpose in it. And so, Sam, hear this. Tom and I are formally uh, applying to be your chaplain so that we can go to your Christmas celebration because there's nothing wrong with a nice meal at the end of the year. But what is our motivation for these things? What is our motivation? Is it, has it become a source of meaning and worth? And so with this mindset that our bodies are our own and a chief avenue for experiencing pleasure and fulfillment, sex is just one other way of seeking meaning and joy apart from God. But like lying and stealing and anger last week, Paul is saying the church is called to be different. And he uses strong language. He says it must not even be named among you. He's saying that the church should be distinct from the world with regard to our sexual ethic and our possessions. As one commentator put it, an outsider who observes the daily behavior of Christians shouldn't have the chance to name one of these vices as characterizing the lifestyle of any member of the community. You see, when we become Christian, we move from darkness to light. And Paul says at the end, right, you're children of light. Walk as if you are, you are light in the Lord. And so one transformation that happens from our old to new life in Christ is that we no longer believe that our bodies belong to us. We're united to Christ, and our orientation to our body is transformed. And we see this in Paul's writings in 1 Corinthians. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? You're not your own. Or in Romans, I appeal to you by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, which is your spiritual worship. Paul's encouraging the church, and he's reminding them that we belong to God. And our body is no longer the chief source of meaning and joy. It's found in the one who's made us. And that's why Paul's reminding them to stand apart, because if the church looks like the world in this area, we're declaring along with the world that the deepest joy and meaning and fulfillment must be experienced now in our bodies. And we're not affirming that God is a greater good. So I have a question. If, I had to, if you had to pick one destination where you're most likely to find people cheating on their spouses, legal, legal sex with prostitutes, and people sleeping with others much younger than themselves, what place do you have in mind? I wonder how many of you thought of Las Vegas. But know that you would be equally correct if you said ancient Rome. But in the, con the same context that Paul finds himself writing to, but the prostitutes would be connected to places of worship. And the younger sexual partners would be young boys with older men. We think we live in a liberal time with regard to sex. And there are significant differences. But there's actually a ton of overlap with the ancient world. And the Christian ethic has always been set apart from the wider world. 
If you read historians of the ancient world, you see a lot like today, sex with prostitutes, extramarital affairs, long-term same-sex relationships, sex with animals, sex with slaves. But when you look at Genesis to Revelation, you see something very different with regards to sex. Because from God in Eden to Jesus to Paul, sex is seen as a gift from God to be experienced in the context of a permanent promise you make it points to oneness in the context of marriage. Two people exclusively delighting in one another. A total commitment to flourishing, to self-giving, to sacrifice that we give to our partners. It's a commitment that points to Christ's commitment to us. And it's good. Think about it. It has the possibility of creating new life. It's powerful. It's beautiful. And yet experienced outside of marriage, it invites suffering. We always suffer when we disobey God. And apart from that covenant, sex deepens a relationship without the commitment to sustain it. You're saying you want a part of somebody, but not all of them. And now you're connected to somebody that you might not be with forever. And as somebody that can speak from experience, it makes it very hard to end that relationship, even if it's broken because you have an extra level of intimacy with them. It hurts your next relationships because it's really hard to go backwards when you've had certain experiences. You start to expect that. And then over time, it becomes purely a physical act instead of a precious gift. C.S. Lewis is known for being a pretty winsome speaker, but he speaks really harshly, I think, about this issue. And he says, the Christian idea of marriage is based on Christ's words that a man and wife are to be regarded as a single organism. Just as a lock and key are one mechanism, the inventor of the human machine was telling us that its two halves were made to be combined in pairs, not on the sexual level alone, but totally combined. The monstrosity of sexual intercourse outside of marriage is that those who indulge in it are trying to isolate one kind of union from all other kinds, which were intended to go along with it. It doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with sexual pleasure. It means you shouldn't isolate it and try to get it by itself any more than you ought to get the pleasures of taste without swallowing and digesting. Because God designed sex for marriage, breaking this law results in heartache. One pastor put it like this, nothing God says is arbitrary. It feels arbitrary, but we have to know that God is more committed to our joy than we are. And so there's heartache, and there's heartache with all sexual sin. Pornography reduces sex to self-seeking. The philosopher Roger Scruton in his book on human nature, he says this, it prizes sexual fulfillment free from the IU relationship, as if it was just a physical condition and not an expression of the self. Instead of being part of what I am to you and you to me in that moment of intimacy. You're watching pornography, you're not thinking about what that person is thinking. They're thinking whatever you're thinking. It's not all about the other. Now, if you don't believe God, there's tons of secular evidence. All of these celebrities have spoken publicly about their use of pornography, and several of them have talked about how it's wrecked their lives. If you watch Chris Rock's most recent special on Netflix, he talks about how pornography ruined his marriage. Kanye West has been very frank about it. But nobody has been more open about it than John Mayer. And he said in an interview in 2012, he said this, he said, internet porn has absolutely changed my generation's expectations. 
20 seconds ago, you thought the photo was the hottest thing you ever saw, but you throw it back and you continue to hunt, continue to make yourself late for work. How does that not affect the psychology of having a relationship with somebody? It's got to. This is my problem now. Rather than meet somebody new, I'd rather go home and replay the experiences I've already had. Almost every major men's magazine has talked about how it's um, led to promiscuous behavior, a lack of sexual desire, ironically, right? Um, more women are watching it than ever. A study of 24,000 women, 76% of the women were millennials, and 63% watch it weekly. This is women. And for many, it becomes a form of slavery that hurts relationships and careers. Another way the church is, has become more like the world with regard to sexual ethics is more and more people living together outside of marriage. And you have to know that in and of itself, that's not a sin, but it's very unwise because for me, it's like putting a, a drink in front of an alcoholic and saying, you can look, but don't touch. You're placing a temptation in front of you that is meant to be enjoyed in the context of a commitment. And if you're saying you have no desire for the person, then that's a different kind of red flag. You should have the desire to be with them. And again, if you don't want to believe God's wisdom, research from the 2000s to the present, there was a study done last year, has continually showed that couples who live together before marriage have significantly higher rates of divorce. The psychologist Nancy Wardick, a secular psychologist, said couples who move in together have up to two times the odds of divorce as compared with couples who marry. Moreover, married couples who've lived together before exchanging vows tend to have poorer marriages, less satisfaction, more arguing, poorer communication. Now, they don't know why, but one of the theories is this called the inertia hypothesis, this idea that when you live together, you think, well, the next thing that makes sense is for us to get married. We're doing everything together anyway. And in the midst of that, major issues in the relationship never get addressed, never get looked at, and they just get worse and worse, and then you're married. There's a connection between what we do with our bodies and how we speak about it. And Paul is saying sex is precious. It's special. It's something to praise God for. It's something that should lead to thanksgiving. But when we make it less than that, the result is to talk about it crudely or insignificantly. He says, let there be no filthiness or crude joking which are out of place. There should be thanksgiving. See, what we do shapes our thinking and our thinking shapes how we speak. We live in a really interesting time with regard to sex in our culture, right? We, we undervalue it and overvalue it at the same time. We undervalue it because it's pervasive in, our, in, in advertisements, in, on our phones, pornography, sex, everywhere, right? And we're numb to things that are meant to be precious, meant to be reserved for certain times and places. But we overvalue it because we say if you're unable to satisfy those needs, you're not fully human. You're not experiencing a meaningful life. And here, too, the church is guilty of sounding a lot like the world. Jackie Hill Perry talks about marriage has become the pinnacle of the Christian faith. She says marriage is not the pinnacle of the Christian faith. Once Jesus had died, come and rose and sent the Holy Ghost to keep us, we were told that this whole marriage thing was more than we'd imagined it to be. That it had more to do with God than anything. Singleness isn't a curse. The most alarming thing about the heterosexual gospel is that it's no gospel at all. It's missionaries carrying to the world a message unable to save. It points to marriage or a temptationless heterosexuality as the reason to repent. 
The reason to turn from sin has always been so we could turn towards Jesus. Our sexuality is not our soul. Marriage is not heaven, and singleness is not hell. And so if this is something you struggle with this morning, take some time this week to ask God why. Is it something that's a distraction? Is it self-soothing? Is it an addiction? Is it something that's compulsive that doesn't even bring you joy? Ask God to reveal that to your heart. If one sin has been to look more like the world with regard to sex, another sin of the church is to focus on sex as a sin at the expense of all the other sins. Every sin separates us from God, but we make certain sins special while we overlook others. And it's striking to see Paul twice here immediately pair sexual sin with greed. He does it in verse 3, sexual immorality or covetousness. And then in verse 5, for you be sure of this, everyone who's sexually immoral or, or impure or who is covetous has no inheritance in the kingdom of God and Christ. Two times he speaks of sexual sin and greed in the same sentence. And he's not talking about greedy sex. He's talking about distinct sins. And he, this is not the first time he does it. He does it in 1 Corinthians. Do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, which is another way he talks about greed. Put to death what's earthly in you, sexual immorality and covetousness. Jesus taught about our money and our possessions more than anything else when he was ministering on earth. And greediness and covetousness was a sin that Jesus condemned. So while some of us struggle with finding fulfillment in sex, others of us look to meaning in our possessions. Maybe sex is not a struggle, but are you content? Are you satisfied with what you have? Or do you find yourself always wanting more? Do you look at what others around you have? Or do you find yourself jealous and frustrated that you don't have the same things? Is your life marked by giving to those around you or more of a rat race to amass more stuff? The sobering thing about this text is that as Christians, we have pounced on people for sexual sin, but we've been light on greed. And Jesus and Paul are not. They call them idolaters. No better. You know, we, we want to say like Gordon Gekko, greed is good, right? But greed believes the lie that amassing treasure is better than God. It's a better savior than God. That material things can satisfy us. And it's difficult to determine if we're greedy, right? Because we're always comparing ourselves to others. And we are always around somebody that has more than we do. So the question has to be, do we have more than we need? How many have rooms that we don't even use in our house? How many of us throw food out every week that goes uneaten? How many of us have kids that complain about something they don't like when we put it before them for dinner? Courtney and I were horrified during the Christmas break. You know, they had Christmas Day, kids open up presents, and then we go to my parents' house, and the first thing on their mind was, where are our presents? We were like, what are we doing wrong? That that's the first thing out of their mouths when they see my parents. But when Jesus talks about money, he warns us not to store up treasures. He says that moth and vermin right, and thieves break in and steal and destroy. And that finding satisfaction and hope in those things is opening us up to pain. It doesn't provide us lasting joy, and it can always be taken away. 
a devastating storm, right? Marilyn's been really fearful lately about somebody breaking into our house. You know, she's afraid of intruders. We can lose our jobs. I forget I'm greedy every day. And it's actually being in a city, it's part of the reason I like being in cities or being on mission trips where I'm confronted with how greedy I am. Because when you're in a city, you see the, the people who have the most walking by the people that have the least. And you remember, wow, I'm so glad I, I have food. I have a lunch, I have a job. And on mission trips, you realize, I could eat peanut butter and jelly for a week, and I'm pretty happy. And I'm working with kids who can see the beach from their homes and have never been there because their parents are working and they can't take them. One of our elders who got to read the sermon in advance said, we're greedy with our time. And I said, I'm going I'm to say that. I'm going to give you credit. Do we make time for others, right? To serve, to meet, to listen to one another. We want time for ourselves, and then we sit in front of our phones and watch YouTube for hours, right? So the question is, like, we have to wrestle with greed. What do we believe about our stuff that it's going to give us? Why don't we make time for others? What can our possessions give us that Jesus can't? And what could more time for ourselves give us that Jesus can't? Ask yourself that question this week. So if the sexually immoral and the greedy can't inherit the kingdom of God, what hope do we have? Well, we would have no hope were it not for the one who came to save us. The Apostle John tells of a time when Jesus is teaching in the temple courts and the Pharisees and the scribes bring to him a woman caught in adultery. And they say to him, the law says that we're to stone her. What do you say? And Jesus bends down and begins to write in the sand. And they say again, what are we to do? Should we kill her? Like the law says. And he stands up and he says, who among you is without sin? Let him be the first to cast the stone. And then he returns to the sand and he writes. When the word became flesh and dwelt among us, the one who kept the law perfectly, he came to a woman guilty of sin that the law said was punishable by death. In Leviticus it says, if a man commits adultery with the wife, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. And Jesus stood between that woman and her judges, and he forgave her. The only one with the right to punish her, the one who came to fulfill, not to abolish the law, showed her mercy. Now, this passage is mysterious, right? We, they, they come, they ask, he starts writing. They ask him again, he says, who's without sin? He goes and he starts writing again with his finger. And nobody knows what he wrote. But there's another place. John explicitly uses the word finger. And there's another place in the Bible that mentions the finger of God. And he gave to Moses when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai the two tablets, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. The commentator says, what if Jesus is one by one writing down the Ten Commandments? Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not lie. Thou shalt not covet. Honor thy father and thy mother. And the Pharisees see the finger and are reminded of the law and that none of them 
have kept it. That all of them have fallen short of God's glory. And that all deserve punishment. And yet Christ says, come to me and find rest. Come to me and experience the joy and the mercy of my Father. The question for us is, how can Jesus forgive such sins? How could he come to uphold the law and then cast it aside to forgive? And then we see that Jesus never said that the sins don't matter or that they weren't sin, but that he kept those laws for us. And he did it with joy. Fully convinced that God's law was the foundation for deep joy, not something that prevents us from experiencing fulfillment. Jesus knew that the deepest joy wasn't found in possessions or in relationships or in bodily pleasures. It came from knowing his father. He woke up early to speak to his father. He studied his word and delighted in its promises. And when faced with a temptation to eat, not out of extravagance, but because he was starving, he said, man doesn't live on bread alone. He didn't minister out of some grand palace amassing wealth and possessions as the only true king of the universe should. No, he had no place to rest his head. He was never greedy with his time. Let the children, fourth or fifth class citizens in the ancient world, let them sit on my lap. He always made time for the people around him. And rather than believing that the body was meant for his own gratification, or that sexual pleasure was the center of being human, he never married. He never had sex. He offered up his body, not just in his life, but on the cross to be broken and beaten for us and for our sins. So that we could know the deepest joy of God as Father. Jesus, having been at his Father's side before the creation of the world, knows the pleasures that await us. That can only be experienced in God's presence. That supersede wealth and countless sexual partners and Nike sneakers and owning a nice car. And he wanted us to experience those pleasures so much, he was willing to die so that we could have them. Look, we know from the Gospels that Jesus is preparing a place for us. In my Father's house there are many rooms, and I'm going to prepare a place for you. We don't need to worry about our possessions. And we also know that there's no marriage or sex in heaven, that they're temporary gifts that point to the ultimate gift giver. C.S. Lewis says this really funny thing about sex in heaven. He says, I think our present outlook might be like that of a small boy who I'm being told that the sexual act was the highest bodily pleasure should immediately ask whether you ate chocolate at the same time. On receiving the answer, no, he might regard the absence of chocolate as the chief characteristic of sexuality. In vain, you tell him that the reason why lovers are in their raptures don't bother about chocolate is that they have something better. But the boy knows chocolate. He doesn't know the positive thing that excludes it. And we're in the same position. We know sex. We don't know accepting glimpses the other thing in heaven will leave no room for. Hence, where fullness awaits us, we anticipate only fasting. Now, only the Holy Spirit can convince us that God is the greatest joy. But God has given us the church. And in the church, these truths take on flesh and blood, 3D reality. And so this morning, if you struggle with believing that Jesus is enough, regardless of your struggle, 
if it's not any of these things, if it's something else, the believers who have been the most encouragement to me in our church come from an unlikely group. Sam Alberry, Wesley Hill, David Bennett, Eve Tushnet, Jackie Hill Perry, Rosaria Butterfield, they all struggle with same-sex attraction. They've all written extensively about their experiences, and their testimonies are all different. But what unites them all is the deep joy that they have found in knowing Jesus that surpasses whatever they haven't been able to experience. Jackie Hill Perry was in a same-sex relationship. She comes to faith. She's now married, but she's really frank about her continual battle with same-sex attraction. And in this podcast I listened to, it was great. She talks about how her and her husband some nights will get home, and they'll both confess checking out the same woman to each other. She's very frank and honest about that stuff. And in her book, she shares this awesome story about after coming to faith, she's at a coffee shop, and she's online, and she's really drawn to this other girl online. And she says this. She says, I couldn't stare... Well, I could. Salvation didn't disable my eyes from functioning, nor her beauty. I could have without question done what I'd always done, allow my body to rule me. I kept noticing her smile, and at the same time I sensed in me a conflict. There she was, as pretty as she could be. Surely I could get her, and I wanted to, but I also wanted something else. God. And so she stops online and she prays. She just asks God for strength. And this is what she says, before I knew it, I was back with the same temptation, but with somebody else's power. That girl had ordered on another register and was waiting for her food, and I was being sustained by God in her presence. This first trial would be the beginning of many to come. Many I would fail, but I learned something that day. God would be there to help me. Being a Christian delivered me from the power of sin, but it in no way removed the possibility of temptation. Or David Bennett, he was a, an atheist and an activist in the gay community. And he said this, he said, On one Sunday, God's voice was clear. Don't worry about your sexuality. And insert any sin, greed, lust, envy, jealousy, stealing, whatever. Enjoy me, love me. Your sin seems like a mountain to you. It's a grain of sand to me. He says, might his sin bring him closer to God in ways that no other work or struggle could and I share these stories because I find them so encouraging. As somebody that has broken every commandment and will likely break them all again, these men and women have found deep joy and satisfaction in Christ. But I also share these stories because they kind of speak to the next verse. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. You see, in Paul's time within the church, people were telling believers this stuff doesn't matter. It's not important. God doesn't care about these sins. But we know that Paul says in Romans, right, do we go on sinning so grace can abound? Absolutely not. So he's saying, look, what they're saying isn't true. You're new. You don't need to live like everybody else anymore. And I think that's an encouragement because I think the church teaches us oftentimes to believe and receive, right? Not, and yet we don't help others in need even though we have so much. Brothers and sisters in the church are struggling. Neighbors are in need and we're stockpiling our possessions not necessary for our lives. There's a church in New York that in 10 years planted 10 churches. And before they planted the first church, all of the, lead, all of the, the core team pooled all of their money to 
cancel everyone's debt out so that they could start this new ministry without the fear of debt in a city like New York. And then in 10 years, God planted 10 new churches through them. What would it be like if we lived like that? Who could we help? What could we accomplish? People say that sex doesn't matter. And I found this video this week that I have to share. It was so convicting of Sam Albury, who's a pastor in the Episcopal Church in UK. And he said this in front of his, like, the equivalent of his presbytery. In a time where for them they could find a church that affirms what they want, they say that God has been better. God has been better despite their daily battle. They're taking up their cross. They know that Jesus is better. So the question for us this morning is to remember who we are, who you are in Christ. You're a walking miracle. And God is not done with any of us yet. He never gives up on us. And so some quick practical applications, and then I'm going to tell you guys a story. One is to to pray like Jackie Hill Perry. When you find yourself tempted, would you stop? And would you pray that God would deliver you from that temptation? We need to read the word to be able to delight in God's promises to us. If greed is a problem, Marie Kondo your house. Go through the stuff that you have and get rid of the stuff you don't need. Go on a mission trip and see how desperate the needs are of the people around you. It gives you a, a wider window into what you have and make a budget and think about what you need versus what you can give. Have conversations with others so we know what other people's needs are. And then something a little bit outside the box, invite others to do things with you. Take people out who might not be able to have the opportunity to go to a restaurant that they would like to go to or even on a vacation. If sex is a struggle, right, maybe if you're watching things that are explicit and you have no reaction, you say it doesn't affect me, maybe you've been hardened to that and that's something to pay attention to. Something I do is I go on IMDb and I check out the parental advisory to know what kind of stuff is going to be in the movie. Get an accountability partner. One of the great things about our men's group is having brothers you could be honest with about your struggles. And then also outside the box, hang out with, if you're a couple, hang out with some single people. And if you're a single, hang out with some married couples and be honest with each other about the blessings and the struggles that you experience as a married person or as a single person. Okay, I want to end with a story. It's a story that you, many of you might already know, but it's a story that means so much to me. There was a sociologist from, he, he got his PhD at Temple, and he taught at Eastern um, Pennsylvania Seminary, I think his name is Tony Campolo. He was invited to speak at a conference in Honolulu. And being an East Coaster, he wakes up in the middle of the night unable to sleep because of the time change. So it's 3 o'clock in the morning, and he strolls out of his hotel trying to find something to eat. And he finds a greasy spoon diner on this next block from where his hotel is. No booths, just one long counter with a bunch of stools. And he sits down, and he says it was so dirty in there that he didn't have the confidence to open up the menu. He was afraid if he opened up the menu, something from outer space might jump out of the menu. And so he looked and he said, can he asked the guy, what's his name? The guy said, my name's Harry. He's like, can I take a cup of coffee and a donut? And so Harry pours a cup of coffee from one of those coffee-stained carafes. And then he goes like this, and he grabs the donut from the rack and gives it to him. And so he's eating his donut and his coffee. 
when 10 prostitutes walk into the diner and they flank him on his right and on his left. And they start talking to each other. The one next to him says, hey, tomorrow's my birthday. I'm gonna be 39 tomorrow, tomorrow's my birthday. And then the one on his left says, what do you want me to do about it? What do you want me to throw you a party? Like, what do I care about your birthday? And the woman says, you know, don't be mean. She's like, I just wanted to tell you that it was my birthday. There was no reason for me sharing that. She's like, I never, I never had a birthday party. I don't expect one now. And so he waited and they left. And he asked Harry, do those women come in here every night? And he said, every night at the same time. He's like, who is the girl next to me? And she, he said, oh, that's Agnes. He's like, it's Agnes's birthday tomorrow. I want to throw Agnes a birthday party here. Can I throw Agnes a birthday party in this diner? And Harry's like, yeah. So he tells his wife who's the cook, Jan, Harry, this guy wants to throw a birthday party for Agnes. And she's like, oh, that's great. And so he's like, can I buy decorations? Can I, can I buy crepe paper? Can I make a sign? He's like, sure. He's like, I'm going to get a cake. And he's like, no, 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 I'll do the cake. And he's like, all right, you'll do the cake. <laughs> and so Jan spreads the word. And the next night he gets there at 2.30 and it's packed to the brim with sex workers in Honolulu. Three o'clock rolls around and Agnes walks in with her friends and everybody shouts, happy birthday, Agnes. And they start singing to her. And her legs buckle. And they sit her down and they bring out the cake with the candles and they sing and she can't blow out the candles. And Harry's like, blow out the candles, Agnes, blow out the candles. And she couldn't do it. And so Harry blew out the candles. <laughs> and then he says, cut the cake, Agnes, cut the cake. And she didn't want to cut the cake. And she said, mister, can I, can I take this cake home? Can I, can I show it to my mom? I live right next door. And so he said, sure, you can do whatever you want with the cake. It's your cake. And so she grabbed the cake and left. Dead silence in the diner. Awkward silence. And Tony Campolo says, I didn't know what to do, so I prayed. Even awkwarder. <laughs> so he prays that God would, would show her how much he delighted in Agnes, how much he loved her. And when he finishes the prayer, Harry goes, I knew you weren't a sociologist, Tony. I knew you weren't. You're a preacher. He's like, what kind of church you preach at? And he said, in a moment where the right words came at the right time, he said, I'm preaching at a church that throws birthday parties for prostitutes at 3 o'clock in the morning in Honolulu. And Harry said, nah, you're not. No, you don't. I want to be a church. I want to be at a church like that. And he said, don't we all? When Jesus came, he came for Agnes. He came for you and me, broken by sin, offering us an abundant, joy-filled life. He loved us so much that he's throwing us a party, welcoming us in to the joy of his rest. This morning, would you delight in what Jesus has to offer you? And know that no matter what you bring here, it is forgiven because of what he's done on the cross.